This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. For much of the last two decades, mainly you, but also to an extent me, have been defending Kanye, right? And now we're sort of in a position where we're not quite giving up, but we're like, oh, yeah, okay, lots of valid points being made from different people, different things. So I think you and I are now, we've progressed from blind defense to like, oh, yeah, there might be a conversation there. I'm worried about uh, Drake being a similar path. So do you remember 10 years ago, the diss of Drake was like, oh, like, He's soft, like, uh, Drake's not like a tough rapper or whatever. It's so true. Like, that uh. is actually true. People were like, oh. Yeah, soft soft old Drake, right? And I was like, no, no. you 100% don't. agree. It's so weird that we thought that us, a bunch of like white guys from Australia watching from the sidelines and like <laughs> who most of his fans were being like, oh, he is a bit soft. I've never been in a fight in my life. Yeah, and it was like, yeah, what? If Drake came around and he'd be like, oh, Drake, <laughs> get out of here, Drake, or we'll get you out. But if there if there comes a day where we need to defend Drake, because we're reasonably pro-Drake on this podcast, as we've learned earlier, I just turned back to um, one of the most amazing, back in 2010 when features were the whole thing, Drake had Jeezy and The Dream on a song called Shut It Down. So like Drake, Jeezy, The Dream, circa 2010, should have been amazing. Turns out it was like seven minutes long with some amazing dream moments, but it's basically a waste of time. But just this, like this line came up, right? Where Drake says, and I'm not going to do a Drake voice, even though I do a reasonably good one. I feel like when she moves, the time doesn't is... Like that's that's how we start getting this. Like, wow, that's that's real trash, Drake. Like you said, when she moves, time doesn't. <laughs> You're finer than your fine cousin, right? As someone who's done battle raps, I know what a forced rhyme sounds like, and I know you're like, I need to get this time doesn't line done, and I need something to meet up with it. So it's this really clumsy. Like, it just sounds to me awful. It like grates in my ears. And and just to, just to interject there, you know, one of the things we often talk about in like marketing mm. creativity is this idea of an insight. And an insight should be like a human truth that resonates. And having a fine cousin, I don't think is necessarily a human truth that would resonate with a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So stay with me. Yes. Like a fine, like older sibling that you go over to the house and you're obsessed. Totally. You, the whole, yeah. Anyway, I could go deep onto that, but yes. Drake's, Drake's anticipating your response, right? <laughs> like, so he's going to try to get there. You're finer than your fine cousin and your cousin fine. So <laughs> we're getting more context, but she ain't got my heart beaten double time. And it's like, oh my God, this is the soft Drake we had to defend. And at the time we defended soft Drake, I defended soft Drake. And similarly to the way we used to defend Kanye and are now sort of going back on it, I wonder where we stand with old Drizzy. That's 11 years old, that song. Well, my belief of Drake at the moment is that 
Mm. Well, my thesis on Drake is that he is our generation's Madonna in the sense that, in the sense that Mm. Madonna was essentially a forward-thinking pop star who was incredibly good Mm. at capitalizing on trends before they were big and then using that to bring out a new record, a new look, and basically like change the pop culture landscape. So far, and also is like great lyricist, great melodicist, great worker with other people Mm. to, you know, all those things. I feel like Drake fulfills that role. And in the same way that Madonna has said some pretty troubling things in her later years, and we've let it slide (laughs) because she's Madonna. I feel like Drake Mm. probably fits into that same category. Oh, so all our time spent defending Drake, uh, much like all our time spent defending Kanye, we might come to just reflect on in a year or two. So let this be the line in the sand where we go, hmm, maybe it's worth raising our eyebrows a bit more at old Drizzy. Now, speaking of judging celebrities from a distance, even though mm. all humans, you know, me no less than anyone else have been terrible mm. at points in our lives to people and Huge you know ar- you know around and really can't especially talk. you in fairness yes yeah i re- i really enjoy spending time you know on the spooko social accounts you know one of them is the instagram account mm. where you know we get some really great comments from people and you know we get into conversations often it's you answering them and i thank you for that because i often don't have time but i've gotten into some really good conversations uh with megan shout out megan who's made like a whole bunch of suggestions yeah and one of the suggestions she made I'm not going to do it today. And I'm, and one of the reasons why is because of two people involved in it. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I don't need to give these people more press. But in one of her comments, when I was like, hey, I don't think we're going to do that. She's like, to be honest, I'd love to hear Pete shred this. So without having seen it, the film that she suggested that we're not going to do is The Ninth Gate, directed by Roman Polanski, starring Johnny Depp. Uh, Peach, what are your thoughts on The Ninth Gate? Oh not having seen God. it. <laughs> I'm not sure there's like... Can you really tee up a worse combo? Well, if we speak of getting cancelled, like, do you remember how there was like half an hour in 1993 where everyone was like, will anyone ever be as cool as Johnny Depp? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, from, and from then it was like, oh, yeah, like... Like, actually, Johnny Depp's not great. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, Roman, the less said, the better. I, I, I mean, look, um, I know most of our listeners are American now. Look, the Attorney General of our country, um, a person named Christian Porter, who we weren't able to name until recently due to how our law operates, is accused of rape. And um, it is now just part of the conversation. It's a word that is describing one of the most (laughs) indescribable for someone who's not been a victim of sexual assault. It is extremely bad, whatever adjective I'm failing to to come to. The fact that a rapist um, filmmaker and um, someone like Johnny Depp, who, who, look, he's very litigious and he listens to Spooko, I'm sure, so I should probably just keep it chill, but... The idea that they are still free to walk with reasonably unsullied reputations for what they've done and go about making the art they'd like to make is fucked. What is the ninth gate about? Shay, give me give me twenty seconds on it. Uh, Johnny Depp is a book- women suck. Turns out <laughs> women are the devil. Young women are the devil. Ugh, they tempt you into raping them. Fuck these guys. 
Okay, so, you know, one one of the things I do try to avoid in Spooko is the fact that, like, as much as I love horror films, and the more I make this podcast, the more I listen back to the episodes, the more I love this genre more. In fact, you know, mm. at, beyond just trying to get you to love it, it's making me love the genre more. There is a troubling undercurrent, especially in slasher films, of, like, rape being a plot device and i try to avoid those films as much as possible because i agree like we've made this point before that not just rape but you know awful things that should be the point of a film become like a little side note to to explain a character's actions and and that that is not the best part that is not the best side of horror and that is something we try to avoid but this film is relevant to this conversation let me explain why so the ninth gate is one of these films that's about satan in the real world and i'm i am actually a fan of that genre because i I often think in horror that often the joy in horror the joy is probably not the right word the the juiciness Mm. the stickiness the excitement comes from how evil is the evil how crazy how disturbed how whatever is the monster or the bad guy and you kind of can't get worse than satan or the devil if done well yep and so this conversation with Megan got me thinking about, okay, well, what are some of these films where it showcases the devil or the devil is a looming presence in a way that, that, it, that is done in like a really unique and interesting way. And that led me to a film that up until last night, I was too scared to watch. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch it for the sake of this podcast because it's classified as a horror film after seeing it. And after having it described to me, it is so much more, but also... It it it's just it's just the strangest film. Now, it's not I, Antrim, Shag. We've already done Antrim. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but it's it's a very arty film. It's a sort of film I would have watched in art school. So because of that, after I saw it, I messaged uh, one of my old art school friends who now lives overseas and was like, "Hey, uh, have you seen this film? What did you think about it?" And she replied, actually, I never saw it when it came out because someone described some of the things that happened in it and I was too chicken. Oh, good. And I feel like this is something that a lot of people have experienced. And so I was like, what a perfect film for Spooko. For me, as well as you, today we're doing a film that The Guardian in 2009 wrote an article about saying, is this a work of genius or the sickest film in the history of cinema? Today, we are doing Lars von Trier's Antichrist. Tell me what you think is supposed to happen in the woods. Where are you? I should have come here. Get out! Gives you too much medication. Doctor Wayne says you want me back home. Oh man. Uh, I do like the car. I do like Defoe as the devil. Super charismatic. Well, he's not quite the devil in this. This is this is a Lars von Trier film, so nothing is as it seems. Uh, Lars von Trier, Danish art director, incredibly controversial, but also very clever in the... What have I seen of his? Did he do Elephant? 
The school, the school shooting one. With, no, that's Gus Van Sant. That's Gus Van Sant. There's a lot of Vaughn directors. He 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 did Dancer in the Dark. Oh, the Bjork one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and he and he was behind the Dogma '95 movement that was all about naturalistic cinema. So, I, I think filming on video, no lighting, no sets. No real actor, you know, like sounds just, awesome. <laughs> but like, literally, <laughs> but also like predicting literally the way we share all our content now. Yeah, okay. You just got like a hundred thousand views on a TikTok talking about a law case mm. in a cafe. Yeah, you know, it's like I'm blowing up. What's up? You could you could draw a line from, <laughs> from the last one for Dog ninety five to coffee to in a coffee case, case twenty twenty one. Why not? Lars is saying, you're welcome, Peach. You're welcome. All those shareholder disputes that are referred to you. Yeah, man. You're welcome. Okay. So before we go into today's episode, Mm. I need to give, I guess, a bit of a warning to both you and you listening Mm. that this is a very provocative film. I'm going to say some words. I'm going to put some images in your head that are pretty troubling. And I just want to put that warning out there because I know I've, I've talked to a few people who listen and are like, you know, some of the episodes are pretty full on and some episodes are fun. Some of them are like goofy. This is not a goofy episode. This, I mean, it, like it kind of, we spoke about Drake at the start. <laughs> it, it is definitely going to be one of those ones that could potentially create images in your head that you can't shake. So I'm just putting that out there. Even though it's Cousins Fine, it may have our hearts beaten double time, Shag. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. So... I just want I want to give one final shout out to Jamie Loftus Lolita podcast. Yes. I finally finished it Isn't this it morning great? and it's just magnificent. It's one of the greatest things I've ever heard. And what I love about it is that it takes a very troubling piece of work and it puts enough context and nuance around it so you can both see, you know, the incredible merit in it and the incredible destruction it's caused on culture since like it, it's amazing for that reason and you know so i don't want to talk about antichrist i don't want to go through the wikipedia synopsis of this film that does not shield you from the craziness uh, of it okay. without giving a little bit of context around it and i want to go back to that article from 2009 when it debuted at khan where they wrote a work of genius or the sickest film in cinema history now this can I, like, is can I just try, like i hate those hyper- is, is it either the best or the worst <laughs> and it's like surely if something's the the best if something may be the best it could also be extremely good or if something's the worst <laughs> you know like without actually being the best like it's just such a stupid fucking comparison to make it's ridiculous that is a really good point uh we're too binary these days yes um This is a quote from the article, and it's talking about all the reactions to the film. Mm. So Antichrist was accused of rampant misogyny, of being an abomination, easily one of the biggest debacles in Khan film history. Variety labelled it a big, fat art film fart. For the critics of Time magazine, the film presented the spectacle of a director going mad. As it happens, there may be some truth to this last accusation. According to Von Trier, he wrote Antichrist on his sickbed while battling an epic bout of depression and conceived the tale as a form of catharsis. Now, in this article, probably based on the fact that, you know, this film has been accused of misogyny, Mm. they basically got four women who work in the creative industries, like artists, filmmakers, and basically asked their opinion on the film, said, watch the film and tell us what you think. And it's interesting that it's evenly split. Two of them are like, loved it. It's great. It's provocative. 
two of them were like, hated every second of it. Why does this exist? So, I mean, maybe it's just yeah, proving okay. your thing that like yeah, this okay. absolutely is either... Maybe I have to have a less binary view. <laughs> All of the people they spoke to in this article clearly had also gone and were like, I need to read everything about this film that I can. And one of them said, and, and I couldn't find this anywhere else, so I, I'm going to take this article's word for it. Apparently... Lars von Trier said of this film that of all the work I've made, this is the closest that has ever come to a scream. So he calls this film a scream. the film version of a scream, which I think is amazing. All right, so let's go to the Wikipedia. And I want to give a final bit of context because when it talks about the production of it, I think this is really interesting because this sets up the film and hopefully gives you some context to explain why some things in this film happen the way they do. <clears throat> So he began writing Antichrist in 2006 while being hospitalized for depression. And I've had glimpses of depression Mm. in my life, but I know people who've lived through it. And it's a black claustrophobic condition. And the idea that you are so bad that you're hospitalized for it must be an incredibly dark place to be. So he initially conceived this film as a horror film. And I love this because we've talked about the fact that Horror is one of the genres where you can kind of do anything. Mm. Now, he conceived it, the film, as a horror film because he felt that allowed to have a lot of very, very strange images that he wanted to put in this Yes, good point, well made. And he'd recently seen a bunch of Japanese horror films such as Ring and Dark Water from which he drew inspiration for this film. Another basic idea about the the film came from a documentary he saw about the original forests of Europe. In the documentary, the forests were portrayed as a place of great pain and suffering as the different species tried to kill and eat each other. Von Trier was fascinated by the contrast between this and the view of nature as a romantic and peaceful place. Von Trier said, at the same time that we hang it on our walls over the fireplace or whatever, it represents pure hell. I want to stop here now as well because, Peach, you are married to a vet and I would would believe that you would have a closer view of animal nature and animals in general than than I get sort of living in the suburbs with, you know, pampered dog and cat owners who essentially anthropomorphize mm. their pets. Mm. Does that sort of ring true, the idea that animal nature is not this loving, beautiful, harmonious thing that we put it as? Oh, I think it's challenging whenever you have the facade that you rightly refer to broken. So whenever you think about production animals and sort of the life cycle of, for example, a chicken or whenever you think of a different kind of production animal, say a puppy obtained from a breeder, um, you think of an extremely unhappy, hellish life um, and we don't need to go into why you should never buy from a breeder or why you should never buy from a pet shop. But I think the idea that we get a sanitized, like surgically extracted version of nature and there's lots of other stuff going on is a hundred percent accurate. Like we, yeah, again, I don't want to dive too deeply into this metaphor, but it's always got me. We've got a gum tree at the back of our house, right? And, and we're around hundreds and hundreds of gum trees, but, and the gum tree is meant to be this like classic Australian tree. And what's interesting is this gum tree is native to Australia, but it's not native to where our house is. And our house is quite wet and moist and boggy. And so there's a risk that this tree gets too top heavy because it's got a small root ball that it ends up overbalancing. And so 
there's this thought I have that it's this great metaphor for like, oh, don't worry, we'll do the natural thing, but we'll just do it our way. And that how there's always a, um, there's always pushback that, 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 that no matter how many strategies you put in place, no matter how, how much you fight or how much ingenuity you apply, there's an inevitability to the victory of your surroundings over whatever you've got in mind. And, and I really enjoy that. So I'm amped if we explore that. And then the final part, and I think this, this helps place it, I guess, conceptually. Does, it doesn't really do anything to, to the story, really, mm. but I think helps place conceptually where this was conceived. And for me, I'm like, this is the coolest horror idea I've heard in years. I love this, and I would love to th- see this explored more. So the title was the first thing that was written for the film. And Antichrist was originally scheduled for production in 2005. Now, remember, he started writing the film that we are going to talk about in 2006. So there was an original version of Antichrist, but its executive producer, uh, and I'm sorry if this is a slur because you wear suits, but the suit on this. Yeah, no, you got me me there. (laughs) (laughs) Peter Jensen accidentally revealed the film's planned revelation that Earth was created by Satan and not by God which I'm like, what a fucking cool place to start a horror film. Yeah. Like, what an amazing playground of ideas to work with. But I'm a bit, like, I'm a bit irritated with Von Trubin. Like, you gave away the plot, and so I'm not going to do it. And it's like, well, like, so it's a bad story if someone knows the ending, is it? You know, like, come on. That's such a good point because I went into this film knowing all the worst things that were going to happen because that's all everybody talked about. Von Trier was furious and decided to delay the shoot so he could rewrite the script. And then he eventually started uh, developing it uh, in 2007 and then it eventually got a release at Cannes in 2009. Anyway, okay. Can I ask before we start, Mm. have you heard much about this film? No, not at all. Absolute zero. I am blown away. I am blown away. This is... This is amazing. I'm genuinely surprised and excited that you've heard nothing about this. But what I, what I would like to say mm. is that the Australian poster was different to the worldwide poster in that the worldwide poster mm. features that image that you might have saw at the end of the trailer with Charlotte Gainsbourg and Willem Dafoe having sex on a tree and there's all these hands around the tree just doing uh, weird stuff. Yes. That was the international poster. In the Australian poster, it was just a pair of big old rusty scissors. So right. I just want to, I just want to put that there. Yeah, okay. That's 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 a thing. That's foreshadowing, is what I'm doing right now. Okay, so the film is bookended by two black and white sequences, a sort of prologue and an epilogue. And in fact, this film is split into chapters, and they name the chapters. And I don't think the chapters are really named in this Wikipedia synopsis. It's not that important. But what is important is that. What we mentioned in this episode earlier, that idea that often horror films take a tragic moment and don't give it the credit it deserves, don't give it the full emotional impact it deserves, is not the case in this film. So it starts with... Do you reckon if someone gave away the names of the chapters, Von Trier would have changed it again? (laughs) (laughs) Chapter names... Yeah. <laughs> Fucking nobody tell him about Wikipedia. Ugh. He'll be like, get him on my <laughs> He's going to change all of his films. They're giving it away again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, and fuck God, we go from a joke to one of the hardest things I've watched in years. 
the start of this film. Incredibly well done. What I have happens to say. at the start so, of Nightingale? Like, can you just tell me what happens? I'm never going to watch it because it sounds too terrible. Can we just spoil the Nightingale? At the, at the start of the Nightingale, uh, someone's child is murdered. Oh, fucking hell! Okay, and it's you know it's not it's uh, it's it's a really difficult scene to watch. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and but the Nightingale as well, I'm like, is one of the greatest films about colonial Australian history I've ever seen. But to anyone who's had a kid, I'd be like, don't, don't see it. this film. Yep. I'm but down. also watch it, but maybe watch it from 30 minutes in. Yeah, I'm down never to see After, it. You know, I'm there, I'm down. But like, it's a I, wonderful I expect film. it's brilliant and perfect and great, but yeah. So anyway, so this film starts with a sequence that is entirely in slow motion, incredibly bombastic because it has this loud orchestral track playing over the top of it. So there's no sound effects. It's just this music. Mm. Uh, and it's it cuts between three things. So it cuts between Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsbourg having quite passionate sex. Um, it's a very bodily film. We're often looking at their, their and not, not in like a sexualized way, in a very much like looking at their ropey muscles. And honestly, both of them are in like the shape of their life in this film. I'm talking like 5% body fat. Both of them are so ripped, like eight packs on both of them. And yet they both still have character actor faces so it's like seeing Willem Dafoe ripped you're like yeah but you've still got Willem Dafoe's face it's weird it's just it's just strange anyway so cuts between them having sex it cuts between a dryer like a tumble dryer like on high rotation just going 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 and it's one of those you know that meme going around images that you can hear like you can't hear the tumble dryer going but you see it and you can imagine you can hear that you can feel the heat in the room you can like it's it's very it's very asmr and then the other thing we cut between and again this is all in slow motion is their toddler who climbs out of its bed walks into their room sees them they don't notice the toddler this is all in slow motion walks up to a table, stands on the table, opens a window in their apartment. They are not on the first floor. Looks out at the snow, trips and falls down. Out, out the window. And they are oblivious to this. They're still having sex. And we have a brief glimpse in the slowest emotion, in the most devastating shot. We see this child oblivious to what's about to happen, just fall and their child dies. There, there's a there's a shot in the middle where we see a child monitor and we see the the audio meter go up and down and because they're having quite passionate sex and also because the dryer's on they don't hear so they don't notice and because of that the child dies now it's one of those awful accidents that could happen to anyone and even watching this it just like it 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 just took my breath away it was it was so well handled. Like, I, I, it feels like such weird praise to say to such an awful thing to see, but it truly was a well handled and devastating scene. So that is the beginning of Antichrist. That sets up everything that's about to happen. Oh, so we then go to full color. We see the mother, Charlotte Gainsbourg, collapsing at the funeral and the father, Willem Dafoe, comfort her. She spends the next month in the hospital crippled with atypical grief, but the father, who's a therapist, is skeptical of the psychiatric care she is receiving and takes it upon himself to treat her personally with psychotherapy. And there's this kind of horror undercurrent 
where he's basically gently gaslighting yep. her the whole way through. Basically being like, you shouldn't be taking these pills. They're doing the wrong thing. I've got the right way to treat you. Mm. I'm the rational person. And when you talk You're about mad. Yeah. the idea that nature always wins, one of the big themes of this is he tries to treat this with his, with his rational thought, but the, 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 the fury, the pain, the sorrow that's coursing through her cannot be contained. So as part of his like psychotherapy and it like it, it, it feels very like pop TV show psychotherapy, she reveals that her second greatest fear is nature. So prompts him to decide to try exposure therapy. They hike to their isolated cabin in the woods. So all of Could it- you name your greatest fears? Like uh, mine's like oh. people I love or dying, you know, or me getting extremely badly hurt or, you know, like... I don't think like people have abstract greatest fears. Like you know, spiders are pretty scary. You know, snakes are pretty scary. Yeah, I don't know. I like. I, I just find the idea of a greatest fear too extreme and binary. But perhaps I'm being <laughs> too binary about that. Anyway. But anyway, so they decide to hike to their isolated cabin that they call Eden, and it's at this point the film sort of becomes a haunted house cabin in the woods sort of horror film. So at this point, mm. it's revealed that she spent time with her son there the previous summer while she was writing a thesis on gynocide, which is the killing. It's, it's also called femocide or a few other things. It's basically the killing of women. No, it's, it's the killing of women for like, because they're women. Mm. Like it's, it's, it, 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 it harkens back to, you know, witch trials and the fear of female sexuality all the way through, you know, the, like the Dark Ages, Fuck essentially yeah. right up and, and still happening, you know, in cultures around the world, you know, including this one, really, yeah. when you talk about uh, Chris, Christian Porter. Christian I, am I, like, is it, can, so, I can say so, Christian Porter. So you now, you now can. It would have been defamatory to do so beforehand and there were a lot of people pinging off Porter's name that were getting post-deleted and stuff like that because until he identified himself as like, yes, I'm the person accused of sexual assault. All we knew was it was one of 18 male cabinet ministers. Uh, And so if you said it's Porter, even if you knew, apparently everyone in the legal community knew and just no one was prepared to go publish it. Um, So there's this subreddit called Oslaw. That's just where Australian lawyers use as a forum. And they're like, just deleted, 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 deleted posts of being like, fucking can't believe Christian Porter. What a fucking, what a dog. Um, I still hate the dog is an insult as well. Name a more loyal and great animal, but mm. um, fuck Christian Porter. Yeah. So during the hike, Willem Dafoe's character encounters a doe uh, which shows no fear of him and has a stillborn fawn hanging halfway out of her. So all the way through this film, there and I don't think they'll all be named in here, but there are these moments of the extreme like extreme nature moments that are often symbolizing uh they're often a portent of danger in other horror films but in this one it's purely a portent of the fact that nature can't be contained and it's done in like uh, in quite an effective way the other thing that's not in this wikipedia synopsis is the soundtrack of this film is that contemporary horror droning like the whole way through it's just like (laughs) you're just sitting there being assaulted with it (laughs) the whole way like it's like it is you are not like i mean obviously from that first scene you are 
off kilter, yeah. but the whole way through, it never lets up. The tension in this film is unbelievable, even when it's quite beautiful and quite slow. So during sessions of psychotherapy, she becomes increasingly grief-stricken and manic, often demanding forceful sex in the way that she's basically like very uh, self, uh, self, like at the you know, and is very much sort of like hit me, like I, you know, okay. it is, is very much like that. That 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 sort of punishment and sex became a similar a similar thing for her. And, and I'm and I'm not going to yeah, dr- and no obviously like Lars von Trier creating that you know it's like he's not a psychologist either, mm. so it's like it, it's just a scene that happens, mm. right? Now the area becomes increasingly sinister to the man. Acorns rapidly pelt the metal roof. He wakes up with a hand covered in swollen ticks, which is the most gross image. Oh, I'm glad they put that in there because I saw that. I've had one tick and I was like, I ran to Adele and was like, Adele, what do I do? And we went to the, like, we went to the doctor. I had a tick in my arm and I was like, I'm going to die. Imagine a, imagine a hand covered in swollen ticks. Oh my God. Oh my God. And then, and then, and then, okay, this is, this is where it gets. So the, this is all building up to the second half of the film. While on one of his walks in the forest, he finds a fox that's disemboweling itself. And then the fox turns to him and literally says, like the fox is animated to say, chaos reigns. Uh, I actually find that a little bit corny, but (laughs) maybe it's just the (laughs) Joker Joker voice you had on. And I was like, okay. (laughs) But he puts on a voice. It's not like chaos reigns. Like he puts on a scary voice. That's, That's actually quite... Bizarre and fun in the retelling, Jag, I should say. So in the dark attic, Willem Dafoe's because he's called the man and she's called the woman. So yep. they never they never given names. Uh, the man finds the woman's thesis studies, which includes violent portraits of witch hunts and a scrapbook in which her writing becomes increasingly frantic and illegible. Again, another great horror trope, mm. but really turned on its head in this film. She reveals that while writing her thesis, she came to believe that all women are inherently evil, which is a this is this is probably yes. the this is one of the reasons why this film and and to be honest, I like I went to read about it because I ended I watched it at the end and I was like I I think I liked that, but at the same time I don't know if my reading of it as a dude is missing something, and in fact it's really fucked. I think the problem is like presenting that as a genuine possible reasonable view that an intelligent person could form is very, very problematic. Like, I I think it is fucked that Von Trier has presented that as a possible reasonable outcome from lengthy research. To be like, what? Women are inherently evil? Yeah, now I get, now I get it. Nah, boo, fuck that. So the man is repulsed by this and reproaches her for imbibing the gynocidal beliefs she had originally set out to criticize. In a frenzied moment, they have violent intercourse at the base of an ominous dead tree where bodies are intertwined within the exposed roots, which is the scene that you see at the end of the trailer, which it's like, and it's, there's a lot of sex in this film and it's not, it's, it's definitely not done from a male gaze. Like it's mm. quite interesting the way it's shot. Like it's very animalistic. It's very carnal. It's like, it's very explicit. Um, and 
at times quite hard to watch, but very much focused on the muscles and the veins of the neck and things rather than the usual sort of sex organs. Anyway, so this happens. After that, he suspects that Satan is her greatest hidden fear. Yeah, like, to, I think there's something lost. Like, I think there is something lost in the Wikipedia plot synopsis here. Like, <laughs> I'm now getting into, like, like the spell's sort of breaking down for me, and I'm like, mm, sounds, <laughs> sounds pretty good. Also, keep in mind, like, the Wikipedia Chaos. synopsis isn't missing heaps. <laughs> okay. Like, it's not actually missing heaps. Like, this is not an easy to understand or explain. Yes, I understand. And remember, the way he described it, he wrote this as catharsis. He wrote, he wrote it as a scream. scream. This isn't necessarily a story. He was like, I need to get this narrative out that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So later on, and I can't remember how it comes along, but I, I think basically Willem Dafoe's character re- receives the autopsy for their son. and So they're still at the shack? They're still at the shack. So most of this film happens at the There's shack. a post box at the shack. I don't know how, uh, yeah, I don't know how it happened. But upon viewing, but he realizes from viewing his autopsy Mm. and photos she took of him while the two stayed at Eden the last summer, Mm. the man becomes aware that she had been systematically putting Nick's shoes on the wrong feet, resulting in a foot deformity. And he sort of presents, he presents this finding to her and shows her a photo and she's like, oh, I must have just had a dumb mum slip of the mind that day. But then he goes back over all of the photos and he realizes that in all of the photos, his shoes are on the wrong foot. And then we cut to a flashback from the last summer with her very coldly putting the shoes on the wrong foot of the toddler who is crying and being like, this is really painful. And it's again, it's a very difficult scene to oh, watch. Oh, fuck. Yeah, okay. I'm back in upset mode. Yeah, okay. Fuck. Yeah, okay. While in the woodshed, she attacks him, accuses him of planning to leave her, tries to have sex with him, he tries to get away because he basically, like, at this point, he sort of left her to be like, what has, what has my partner done? Mm. What was she doing to my son? There's something going wrong here. You know, this isn't just grief. There's something else. She is out of her mind in, you know, rage and grief, and she's like, you're going to leave me, pushes him to the ground, tries to ha- start having sex with him. He pushes her away. So she, ta- she pushes him to the ground. This is, okay, so this is where things get quite full on. Um, takes a large block of wood, smashes it onto his groin, causes him to lose consciousness. And then again, sorry, I give so many warnings, but I'm sorry about this sentence. The woman then masturbates the unconscious Willem Dafoe to climax, culminating in an ejaculation of blood. Oh, well, like he weighs blood out of his penis. <laughs> yeah, we see this whole shot and it, it looks kind of fake. It looks very tomato saucy. But it's also really tough to watch. And I had to watch it with another screen open. I knew this was coming, but I had to watch it with another screen open. You know, um, and this isn't even the worst thing that's going to happen oh, in this film. But it's, it, it, it's a thing that happens, right? She then, while he's unconscious, drills a hole through his leg, takes a heavy grindstone <coughs> and bolts it through the hole in his leg, uh, tosses the wrench she used under the cabin uh, so he can't leave. He awakens alone, unable to loosen the bolt. He hides by dragging his... Oh, Peach, I'm so sorry. I'll give you no, a That's all right. Keep going. Keep I'm going. so sorry. 
No, no, we're getting through. Don't, uh, don't fucking stop and okay. stay there. <laughs> okay, right. Pretty he soon, hides by dragging. Pretty soon, the helper from the fucking airport security from Get Out is going to show up and be like, "Whoa, fucking Willem Dafoe." <laughs> That was intense. He hides by dragging himself into a deep foxhole at the base of the dead tree. Following the sound of a crow, he is found buried alive in the hole, which we imagine is the foxhole of the fox we saw before. She locates him and attacks from above with a shovel, trying to just get to him. And then it sort of fades to black. So we don't know if she gets to kill him or not. But night falls, and now remorseful, she unburies him, but cannot remember where the wrench is. She helps him back to the cabin, where she tells him she does not yet want to kill him, adding that when the three beggars arrive, someone must die. In a flashback, she recounts Nick, their child, climbing up to the window, but she does not act and she sees him fall, thus displaying her perceived essential evil. And then in the cabin, she takes a rusty pair of scissors. We don't know what she's going to do with it. Yeah. And I didn't watch, in fact, I knew this was coming and I didn't watch it, so I don't know what happens on screen, but she cuts off her clitoris with the rusty pair of scissors. The two are then visited by the crow, the deer and the fox and the three beggars. A hailstorm begins. Earlier, it had been revealed that the woman accused of witchcraft had been known to have the power to summon hailstorms. When he finds the wrench under the cabin's floorboards, she attacks him with scissors, but he manages to unbolt the grindstone. Finally free, he viciously attacks her and strangles her to death. He then burns her on a funeral pyre like a witch, you know, in centuries past. Yes. So then we have the epilogue for the film, which is now back in black and white. He limps from the cabin, eating wild berries as he goes, trying to find his way out of the forest. Reaching the top of a hill under a brilliant light, he watches in awe as hundreds of women, all with their face blurred, in antiquated clothes, come towards him and pass him seemingly towards where his partner was burned alive on their way. They don't even acknowledge him. They don't have faces. They just walk past him. And that's the end of Antichrist. Yeah, okay. Peach, I'm like... Like, I don't know. I, I, like, I don't know. What 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 do you think? What are your know. feelings? I expect there's 15 or 20 reasonably um, uh, well-viewed YouTube explainer videos for like, what did, what did fucking whatever this movie's called that I've just forgotten mean? The Antichrist. Antichrist. What did the Antichrist mean? Like, <laughs> I am all for artistic expression in a, general sense, right? I am not completely pro-free speech. You know, I'm a defamation lawyer. There, you know, Part of me is a defamation lawyer in my DNA. Like, there are some things you shouldn't be able to say. And there's some artwork you shouldn't be able to publicise and shouldn't be able to spread around. This is probably not that. But if you are a creator who is so in tune with your work and so aggressive about your vision and not anyone else's vision being displayed, the idea that the suit spoiling your ending in 2005 <laughs> is a fucking important outcome for your like, an artistic integrity just really shows this out to be a real hollow work of exploitative hypocrisy. I think it's been made by an egomaniac 
who is probably more celebrated than he ought to be. I suspect bits of it looked very um, beautiful in a in a broad, in a well crafted, well constructed sort of sense. And it takes craftsmanship to make an atmosphere. It takes craftsmanship to make something that it sounds like may well feel like a scream for an hour. But the idea that this is a great movie, um, based on my never having watched it, strikes me as completely fucking perverse. Congratulations, you made a diverting moving picture. Uh, Now go home and go whinge about the behaviour of someone else who's probably just trying to go into business with you and promote your film and your success. Fuck off, Lars. (laughs) And final note, like it sounds like the most perverse, full-on art house, where could I possibly find this film sort of film, I saw mm. it on Stan. So if you're in Australia, you can literally <laughs> sign up to Stan and just search Antichrist and it's like there. People who liked yeah, Antichrist is. also liked these other, like it's literally there. So oh if for God. some reason, and look, to be honest, like I said before, I don't, st- I still don't really know how I feel about this film, but I'm not ready to be like, it sucked and it doesn't deserve to be seen right now. So if something about this film made you think, you know what, I need to see part of this for myself. You can literally watch it on Stan right now. Shag, I didn't like this one. Uh, This was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up? Chaos. Right.